Welcome to Partisan Gardens. We can't wait any longer. For a tech breakthrough, climate apocalypse, the revolution, or a reform of the USDA loan system. On Partisan Gardens, we know climate catastrophe is here, and it's our food system's dead end. Here we see sustainable fine dining and ecological destruction, hunger and obesity, extreme wealth and immense poverty. We must be frank about reality to reckon with our options. We must choose sides and become partisans of a new way to live and grow food. This alternative path is already under construction. Through the experiments and struggles of food service and agricultural workers, we are figuring out how to create food systems that will nourish a livable world for us all. Partisan Gardens will feature stories from kitchen staff, new small farmers, undocumented slaughterhouse organizers, agroecology researchers, black farming cooperatives, urban gardeners, indigenous land stewards, permaculturists, and countless others exploring this field of experimentation. Let those of us who refuse to wait proceed together. The current food system has failed. And we are on the side of nourishment and care. On this episode of Partisan Gardens, we're sharing a vital summary of the ongoing mass farmer protests in India. For almost six weeks, Indian farmers have blocked the major highways leading into the capital, New Delhi. More than 100,000 people are maintaining tent cities on the highways themselves in conjunction with a broader movement that mobilized 250 million farmers in strikes in November. These protests are pushing back on a suite of three neoliberal reform laws introduced by the ruling right-wing BJP party, intended to remove protections for small farmers and increase the power of large corporations in the agricultural sector. Just last week, we spoke with researcher Gorka Mehta about the Indian agricultural sector, the neoliberal reform laws, and the massive movement organized by Indian farmers to shut down the capital until these laws are withdrawn. Ranging from the self-organization of the blockades, including makeshift libraries, kitchens, and self-published newspapers, to the role of the state in organizing food markets. Her analysis helped us understand the movement and gain lessons for thinking about agricultural struggles in North America. Further, her observations on the role of state racism and pernicious efforts to spread conspiracy theories discrediting the farmers are enormously timely, just as the farmers' intelligent efforts to link themselves with other recent movements offer important instruction for us here. On January 12th, the Indian Supreme Court suspended the laws until the government enters into a new committee-based consultation with the unions, farmers, and other actors. However, farmers have maintained their blockades while continuing to demand the full repeal of these laws, and many farmers are refusing to engage with the consultation at all. At the protest sites, many farmers, singers, and musicians have been making music and releasing tracks. We're sharing two songs recorded at the blockades. In this song, the central sentiment is, wake up farmer, Fight the government for your rights. जड़वैरी दी पोटे ओए पुटने दा वेड़ा 
तेरे सिर ते चो तो चानन गए ने तेरे जुट वे जुटन दा वेड़ा उठ I'm Gorka and I research the colonial politics of race and caste between India and the Caribbean. The context for the ongoing protest and we're now on I think day 45 of the protest actually starts with a sort of series of uh, farmer protests that go back to the 1980s. Before that we have the context of the green revolution. At the sort of tail end of the colonial period there was a food shortage and a number of famines. And green revolution was sort of like imagined as this economic way out by the early Indian governments. And it was put in place with the help of a number of American, you know, quote unquote, experts who were called in to primarily increase the production of wheat and rice. And over the course of a number of decades, India became a producer of rice and wheat in such quantities that there was a food surplus. At the point at which the surplus emerged, there were policies put in place to regulate the market. And these particular policies, especially, they center around the idea of the mandi. uh which is something like a wholesale market something like it's so it's a state regulated and by state i mean individual states the jurisdiction on these uh, mandis or these wholesale markets is under the state lists in the constitution and not under the central government list so this is significant because each state regulates its own mandi and this is one of the aspects that has been criticized about the current land reform bills which i'll get to in a minute so these spatial mandis are supposed to be uh, wholesale markets where farmers are supposed to sell their produce and the major regulating force in these is something called the msp or the minimum support price the minimum support price is a sort of set price that is set by various committees within the state and though this is set only for a small number of crops it ends up sort of regulating the entire market in terms of what the minimum price that a farmer can procure for any certain product might be so this is sort of you know like a history in decades of the indian agricultural sector has been a history of regulation uh, primarily centered around the space of the mandi or the space of this wholesale market and particularly within that the most sort of significant aspect is the minimum support price which means that prices remain regulated and this coupled with subsidies for farmers such as um subsidies on electricity and so on have been the norm within of course like the agricultural sector there are other political concerns that have animated this scene so you know the the farmer protest is a protest that is presumed to be led by land owning farmers but within the agricultural sector in india there have been important political nodes specifically the relationship between land owners or you know big farmers and landless farm labor and this has sort of been the center of the struggle on the left in india as well in terms of unions trying to unite various fronts and this is the big divide there have been large scale protest movements and large scale organizing that has been done by and amongst the smaller landless laborers in opposition to the landed farmers and it sort of goes back to many colonial time policies called the zamindari system or the system of having bonded labor work farms and there's a sort of caste based history to this that predates the colonial arrival and just goes back to the caste system in terms of ownership of land and the idea of indentured servitude so these things have also animated you know the politics of agriculture outside of economic regulation there is the entire aspect of you know who owns the land and this becomes important in this protest because the question was like 
who comes forth in solidarity with the farmers should landless farm laborers support the farmer strike you know they have not much to gain but perhaps they have more to lose from um, the corporate um, interests being served by the government so this is one aspect that you know a complicated aspect of the agricultural sector in india another major sort of important thing to note in this is and and something that you know is a well known fact or internationally uh, known fact is uh, the high rates of farmer suicides in india and a majority of these farmer suicides happen because of bankruptcy and debt so farmer debt in india is the sort of like lar- biggest cause of farmer suicides and partly though you know we've talked a little bit about like the landed farmers or large farmers with a lot of land and you know their exploitation of uh, landless labor a large number of indian farmers are actually small so there is a sort of conflict within the movement as well in terms of like how best to organize and you know unite in solidarity small farmers landless farm labor and the big farmers or farmers with larger land holdings and so there are threats to sort of like each of these aspects of farming sector in these bills it does speak to a lot of like the political leanings of this government uh, which have been you know towards introducing reforms that support free markets as well as big corporate interests right and for the farmers these are nameable corporate interests it's not like a shadowy corporate hiding behind the government these are visible and in terms of like political party funding and so on so there's the whole question of emergence of increasing number of neoliberalizing legislation during covid right so there have been a series of bills that have been passed uh, during covid in terms of agriculture there have been three important bills which the farmers are protesting but just in terms of a general assault on the idea of citizenship as well as the politics of minoritization in terms of caste and in terms of religion or communal identities as well as gender so this movement the protesters come on the heels of many protests that have shaped you know the pandemic in india and the government that has taken the opportunity of the pandemic to pass a number of draconian laws in fields that were previously unaltered for instance education they passed uh, an education bill that was the first bill to amend certain aspects of the education of the national education policy which was last sort of passed in 1968 so they really did sort of hone in on this opportunity to have the populations consumed by the pandemic and use that as an opportunity to pass a number of bills and apparently allegedly through some non-constitutional means as well so that's the sort of background in which the three bills emerge and i think it would be useful to sort of just go over what the bills are okay so the the primary thing that these bills introduce is contract farming and this is akin to you know with the liberalization of the indian economy uh contract labor became the primary sort of form of employment for a large section of society and this t- takes that sort of like model of the free market and inserts it into the agricultural sector specifically with this idea of corporates being able to buy produce from farmers without reference to location and with no taxation i'll go over each of the three bills and the you know projected impact of each is so the first one is the farmers produce trade and commerce promotion and facilitation act and this particular act is the one that sort of you know destabilizes the mandi space right which we talked about the wholesale market and creates a dual market the dual market is supposed to function without these regulations on prices 
and introduce private parties and big corporates and, and you know, large scale conglomerates into the farming sector by having farmers and these private companies be in a one-on-one relationship that is legally bound by contract. And the contract, it seems fairly obvious to anyone reading the bill, I, I think that these contracts would be drawn up and written up by these corporates and that it's a sort of like attack on the autonomy of these farmers who were, um, you know, already in debt and relying on this minimum support price. And so this essentially does away with the minimum support price, which means that the price that the produce is going to be bought and sold for is to be determined by the parties involved. So it's a a pretty fair, basic, you know, free market idea. But essentially, when we're considering how farmers, especially small and marginal farmers in India, compete against large scale corporates, what that basically means is that large corporates are going to first draw up contracts that tell farmers and these contracts are to be signed with a predetermined price for the produce before any sowing or harvesting is done. So what that means is that, you know, it does not account for all kinds of things that happen between sowing and harvesting, right, in terms of like crop turnout and produce. So it doesn't account for any of that. There's a predetermined price at which these things are to be bought and sold, determined by corporates beforehand. And so it sort of traps these farmers in these contract deals in a way that is not very different from the way that, uh, you know, large-scale labor in India is now trapped in these contract labor contracts, right? So that's the first sort of thing. What it does is it sets up this dual market and in doing so, it chips away at the Monday system, right? Because presumably nobody's going to be buying and selling at a regulated price when, you know, when the entire market shifts to the other model, which is the model of like private corporations drawing up contracts. So there is that which drew like massive protests. And particularly the farmers do identify these corporate interests as, you know, with specific companies and particularly companies that have been in close contact with the BJP, the ruling party, in terms of like election funding and campaigning as well. So it's a clear sort of state corporate interest that drives this particular bill. And and it's clear enough to be visible to, you know, these farmers who have now like turned up in large numbers. The second bill is the Farmer Empowerment and Protection Agreement on Price Assurance and Farm Services Act. This is supposed to set a dispute settlement method, you know, for these contracts. What it basically does is it further deregulates the entire system and thereby sort of sets up a legal machinery that farmers could in, uh, you know, like, in theory, make use of, uh, but that corporates are obviously way more used to making use of anyway. So it, it doesn't seem like going through a number of sort of local, uh, sort of subdivisional legal systems is uh, is in any way a sort of like protective measure. But nonetheless, what I mean to say is that in the naming of this bill itself, it's it's cloaked in this aura of protection for the farmers. It's called an empowerment and protection agreement, right? So. Of course, this is misleading language, right? There is no agreement, there's no empowerment, there's no protection. So it's an opportune discursive event where the government has chosen convenient uh, sort of verbal crutches. And, and I think that this does sort of have an impact on how folks who are not protesting, folks who are not on the street, uh, read and view this bill, right? Those who are not sort of uh, engaged in researching the details of the bill, but rather reading and relying on, you know, what 
these words are. So it's a, it's a sort of like convenient misleading of like anyone consuming any news about this bill is like, ah, this is supposed to protect the farmers, right? In essence, it takes away like the only sort of regulating factors that were protecting the farmers, which was the Mundi system, which will uh, collapse. And, uh, you know, in places where that there have been reports from states such as Madhya Pradesh, where the Mundi system has already collapsed in the, you know, in the face of like rising corporate engagement with these small farmers. So there's, this is the second act. The third one is the Essential Commodities Amendment Act. It, this only further sort of uh, deregulates prices. I mean, of course, it's, it's very important that like this particular act comes at the time of, you know, the economic impact of COVID and of the pandemic in terms of unemployment and in terms of food and shelter and food security in India. So the Essential Commodities Act, it sort of like allows for the stockpiling of certain kinds of foods. And previously, this was regulated and limited. So it allows for the stockpiling of perishables and non-perishables. And it sort of like posits that prices will only be regulated in the event of war or famine, or if prices, you know, if, if prices double. And so the things listed under these, like cereals, legumes, onions, right, whatever is perceived as a as an essential commodity, the, it basically places all of these essential commodities in the convenient hands of big corporates who could stockpile perishables and non-perishables and dictate the market prices of these essentials and, of course, buy them at a cheaper price from farmers. You know, this was just my description of the three acts, and I've tried to stick to, you know, what the acts say themselves. But we can obviously imagine sort of like aspects of coercion and things like that that would naturally emerge in these contexts. There's no reason for us to assume that these contracts, which are supposedly legally bound and bear the signature of the state, right, they, this formality and legality and a farmer signs a document that you know, it bears this whole like signature of the state or like this is some official something. Like how much of that is actually just going to turn out to be if these acts are not repealed, just coercion and intimidation of farmers on the ground, right? Particularly small farmers. And we don't know this yet and it's hard to estimate or project what this would look like in caste terms, particularly who from the corporate is going to show up in these farms and villages in rural India and what kind of middlemen are they going to hire and what kind of networks of intimidation will arise from that uh, situation. And particularly what this will look like for the farmers who are in debt and for the farmers who are already suffering from caste-based oppression. And, you know, for farmers who are primarily women. So, you know, again, like there will be networks of intimidation and uh, middlemen. The idea of the middleman here is interesting because one of the, you know, government's big selling points of these acts has been we're getting rid of the middleman. And uh, this is supposed to, uh, you know, like from the producer to the consumer um, sort of model. Whereas, of course, in this case, it's a misreading of whatever their imagined middleman is, the middleman in, in, in this case being this, uh, the regulating bodies. Um, and instead, uh, you know, it puts them, puts the farmers in a direct relationship with the corporates and endangers their autonomy as producers. And it has a sort of chain effect because Previously, there were other street vendors, for instance, you know, who rely for their livelihood on these uh, wholesale markets, right? So you buy from the wholesale market and you sell it in the street. And there are street vendors for vegetables and fruits. And those street vendors are going to be pushed, you know, many of them already live in poverty, right? These are small street vendors. They're going to be pushed, you know, to a point where 
we might see something like street vendor protests or we might see street vendor suicides. This is thanks to the stockpiling aspect, right? Where like uh, new corporates and new grocery stores can set up shop and replace these street vendors. The first act has a clause about electronic trading platforms. So this is also like in the wake of, uh, you know, e-commerce in India becoming a major force and particularly what something like, uh, you know, like Amazon's grocery uh, delivery service would look like in India in terms of what that means for farmers and what that or and small scale farmers and what that means for uh, very small scale street vendors when, you know, uh, particularly e-commerce and, and this is something that, you know, if this bill were to pass smoothly, which thankfully it hasn't without protests, that is something we would be able to see in COVID because more people are ordering, you know, groceries online in COVID. So, you know, there is a chain of small scale producers and distributors who are at risk. And yet the sort of like, if these aspects of the bills were discussed, I think we would also see street vendor protests, but but we don't really, we, so we'll maybe get to that about uh, the unions and the organizing and uh, who is protesting. And who is not protesting and those who are not protesting, why maybe they're not out on the streets. There's a sort of interplay here between general uh, all India strikes and the longer strike that is like on its 45th day. Right. So there's a sort of like dual protest. So I'll go into the details of the organizing. There are about 40 unions. Now they are at the forefront of the organizing. But in the way that this arose, there was a sort of, you know, march on the capital of the country. And this march, like there was a lot of sort of door to door organizing that led to the emergence of large numbers. And the unions, some of them anyway, were sort of late to the scene, you know, nonetheless, like they have done very important organizing work. And interestingly, now, since you asked me, you know, what, like who is here and, and what about the rest of the people, right, who could be mobilized for this kind of a organized protest. And the unions now, their priorities lie with bringing these, for instance, I talked about the landless uh, labor, right? And so a lot of the unions are now focused on mobilizing landless farm laborers and explaining to them the cycle of exploitation that could be inaugurated where this neoliberal, the the neoliberal turn and the turn to like uh, big corporates is in fact more detrimental to the landless labor, which, you know, for a second has to sort of overlook the aspects of the internal politics between the land owning farmers and the landless farm labor. Right. So it's part of that chain that I was talking about earlier, that, of course, uh, the landless labor doesn't have much to gain from not supporting the strike or from supporting the corporate interests uh, of the state. And so that is what the unions, as far as I know, are focusing on now, you know, sort of mobilizing these groups and bringing them to the outskirts of Delhi or the borders of Delhi, the national capital that have been occupied at five important points along the borders. So to bring these landless farm laborers there, as well as to sort of bring other kinds of people into the fold, like those who will be affected, you know, but, but, but are consuming the BJP or the state narrative or the propaganda about, you know, corporates and trickle down effect, right? So one of the sort of like one of BJP's rallying points in in a lot of this is the trickle down wealth idea, right? Which I think the unions are doing some work to sort of debunk and bust 
to uh, you know illustrate what economically it would actually look like for a big corporate to come in and land grab right basically grab land i think one of the things that that is important to explain of course is that like in neoliberal policy making land grabs don't just function as a as a sort of like you sell the land to a corporate but rather through this language of reform and protection and freedom or opening up of the market and so on you know the government's rallying points have been like well this gives farmers more freedom to sell their produce to whoever they want or to sell their goods to a large number of buyers rather than be restricted so the language around these reforms uh, you know is one of like freedom and open everything will be open and farmers will benefit which i talked about earlier is reflected in in the names of the reforms themselves uh, but yeah one of the sort of focuses of the unions is to really get to places outside of delhi where protests aren't already going on and get there and sort of reach out to sort of people who are on the fence but it's important to note that dalits or you know those historically oppressed by the caste system and those who have been um, deemed outcast by upper caste indian society that they have come out in large numbers in support of the farmer strike both in you know those you know who who live the oppression of being uh, landless laborers on a daily basis as well as organizing groups so the ambedkar student association they for instance set up a library inside one of the protest camps so there has been a, a very significant and important show of solidarity by dalits and by dalit groups and dalit organizers for the protest and this is an important sort of like impact both of like sort of emerging dalit politics in solidarity with leftist politics but also of the sort of history of protests that have shaped the last uh, year and a half so i'll talk a little bit maybe now about uh, what the camps looked like and or what the protest sites looked like I think on November 30th Indian Express estimated that there were 300,000 farmers who marched uh, towards the capital. The plan was to blockade the uh, national capital and this was accomplished through you know setting up heavy tractors along the national highways. So National Highway 44 for instance which is a very busy highway was completely occupied and then slowly other national highways that lead into the capital new delhi were blocked it's a site of occupation now so this particular strategy it's called ghero in hindi and amongst the protesters and so basically that sort of translates to encirclement it's a kind of picketing strategy and it does sort of the goal was to block the city right at its at its exits and now this is sort of picking up on state highways as well as opposed to just the national highway there are reports of more farmers coming in from maharashtra which is on uh, the western coast you know because one of the critiques of the government has been that this is a protest dominated by farmers from the north indian states of punjab and haryana and of course statistically punjab and haryana are the states where farmers have the highest incomes but nonetheless there has been mobilizing in these other states so again one of the other aspects of you know what the unions are trying to accomplish is get to these other states and mobilize farmers from there so the initial move was coming in in tractors uh, you know let's say there's five people per tractor and uh, surrounding the capital once they were at the capital there have been a series of talks with the government by union leaders as representatives of the farmers i think yesterday was the eighth round of talks which basically means that seven talks have already occurred and on the side of the government these talks have been led by narendra singh tomar who is the agriculture minister 
And he has sort of defended the government's stance and created the discourse that has shaped how these protesters have been perceived by the wider public that that is not participating in protests and also by those who, you know, have expressed themselves not on the streets, but elsewhere in support of the BJP reform and, and BJP's narrative about what is happening with land reform. So anyway, so they entered these national highways and blocked the city. I think it's important to note that, you know, unlike some protests that take place outside government buildings, which could be the parliament or, uh, you know, national monuments and so on, that this protest has remained on the outskirts of the city. And that there's been a sort of engagement with the city in terms of logistics, in terms of, you know, blocking entrance to the city, blocking exits from the city, infrastructurally sort of challenging what the national capital can do. And there has not been a sort of, uh, you know, seeking legal reform outside the parliament mode of protest. And this is uh, similar to protests that have emerged before this one. So the talks have taken place at government-designated buildings, but that requires union leaders traveling there. The sites themselves, since, since they've been sustained for 45 days now, you know, have, have attracted a lot of media attention. So there have been a number of photo essays as well as long videos and some people have done, you know, just like visits. So so it's a sort of open space where you can visit. So there's a lot of movement of uh, volunteers at these sites. This is particularly crucial given the context of COVID and the health concerns as well as the context of the Delhi cold, right? So it's the Delhi winter. I think there have been 20 deaths at the sites and a number of them have been just because of the cold. There is a health risk that is associated with these sites that is not just about the pandemic, but rather just pneumonia and being out in the cold. And particularly as the winter rain sets in. About the logistics and sort of what life at these protest sites uh, looks like, most people are camping in their tractors or in their trucks and they've used plastic covering to you know, create these makeshift tents inside their trucks and tractors. So that's the sort of sleeping space. Food has been organized, you know, in a, in a sort of like free community meals. And they're mostly, the cooking revolves around rice and uh, lentils. Things like the cooking responsibilities are divided based on number of trucks. So this is also a very large area. And there is a question of communication, both in terms of like, of course, food and other kinds of logistics, but also in terms of organizing, you know, like which street to occupy when or where to move next or when to protest or what sort of banners to share. All of this has to be communicated across these five sites. And the five sites are along the border of Delhi. So it, it takes a while to get from one to the other. So two days ago, there was a rally. And, and the point of the rally was that uh, different sort of leaders from each of these sites were going to converge at one of the borders and talk. So with that rally, there were, you know, massive like uh, traffic blockades. The city's infrastructure cannot support this kind of complete like upheaval of transportation. So in that, they're being very effective. So they had this rally and this rally has been described by the leaders of the movement as a rally rehearsal for what, what they expect to do on the 26th of January. So 26th of January is Republic Day in India, and it's usually characterized by marches and, you know, displays of the state's pride, I guess, uh, at the Red Fort, which is a Mughal monument in Delhi. There's been talk by these protesters, you know, officially announced, I mean, officially in the sense that they've announced it to various interviewers, they will march to the Red Fort on Republic Day. 
you know, unless the law is repealed before that. You know, that is what the government has to contend with. And it's one of their strongest threats to the city's infrastructure on a day when everything is already being uh, surveilled highly and being recorded. Uh, so that's that's the sort of uh, move that has been promised. And for that particular rally, according to the union leaders, they will have people on tractors coming in from all parts of the country. So, you know, it's really supposed to take the numbers up. The numbers are already very high at these sites. You know, since there is so much space between each of these sites, there has been some question of communication, which I mentioned. And, you know, they they do have phones. In in contrast to some other uh, protests, this one has not primarily been mobilized on social media or even largely been mobilized on social media. And uh, one of the reasons, as cited by, um, you know, someone at the site who is an editor of of a newspaper that emerged at the site is that the protesters are primarily elderly farmers. So using Instagram or using Twitter has not proved to be the most effective way of organizing uh, large-scale protests in this case. And there's been a newspaper or a, a circulating sort of publication that has emerged on these sites called the Trolley Times, right? So they're calling these makeshift homes that they've built out of their trucks trolleys. So the Trolley Times, uh, twice a week, they publish a newspaper that is published from within the site. And so they publish this newspaper and it's meant to balance anecdotal stories, you know, of the people at these sites around why they came out to protest and what they imagine the outcome of these laws will be and analytical pieces on the government's repeated assault, you know, and minoritization of uh, workers and farmers. And uh, a lot of the sort of union discourse is uh, preserved in these pieces about worker-farmer solidarity and um, so on. But nonetheless, it's important to note that these spaces were large enough to merit this self-sustained publication. There have always been like flyers and pamphlets and distribution of uh, written material uh, at various protests. But in this case, it's more specific in that the entire newspaper is named after the protest and exists also to communicate between various people at the borders around the city. There have been women protesters who have suffered at these sites mainly because one of the things that's lacking here is sanitation. There are some uh, mobile toilets, but again, like there's no cleaning, there's no scheduled cleaning. And so, uh, you know, and and around the distribution of menstrual hygiene products. So there has been a struggle by women at the protest sites around menstrual hygiene. And again, it's, it's particularly cold in Delhi right now. So based on reports, they've been using like nearby homes and uh, shops and factories, the toilets that are made available to them. But given the COVID pandemic context, they're often turned away. People don't want to interact with someone who's been in a site of 100,000 people. So there has been a lot of issues around sanitation. Mobile medical tents have been set up. Uh, Again, like there is a lot here to do with the population being largely elderly farmers. And so these mobile networks have been set up and mostly they're funded by NGOs, but a lot of them are also funded by diaspora groups. And this is a sort of interesting aspect of this protest. You know, there have been like protests in California and in parts of Canada in support of the farmers. And there has also been, you know, a lot of funding that comes in from these diaspora groups for the everyday running of these sites. I think one of the other goals of the Trolley Times is to sort of challenge the monolithic narrative that the government produces about these sites and these places. And this is also reflected in the in the narrative that emerges from the protest site itself. So for instance, there are banners that say things like farmers are not terrorists. 
And the reason for that is that the government has recently spun this narrative that these farmers are acting on behalf of separatist groups or insurgents, uh, you know, these imaginary insurgents that the farmers are cast as. A lot of the protesting has uh, unfortunately been focused on defending the farmers as legitimate citizens as opposed to terrorists. And, you know, again, the word terrorist here is interesting just because in light of a recent Unlawful Preventions Act, uh, which is an act of the Indian state that is used for prosecuting, um, you know, so-called terrorists, um, that was amended to make it easier to arrest activists and protesters on grounds of sedition. And there have been a number of arrests that have taken place again during COVID. So, you know, this points to the thing I said that about the government really zooming in on these draconian laws during COVID when, you know, the population is rightly so uh, occupied with not getting sick that the government has really used this as a time to pass a, a number of these laws or to arrest a number of important activists. So in the past year or so, a number of important activists have been arrested. And these have been people who were associated with important protest sites. For instance, a lot of uh, students who were important uh, to the organizing of the protests against CAA NRC or the Citizenship Amendment and um, National Registry protests that took place earlier in 2020, you know, which would see the government deprive a number of Muslim residents of their citizenship and, you know, thereby make them completely subject to the government's whatever they would like to do with them. So they've arrested folks who were present at these protests in large numbers. There was a lot of news about arrests in Kashmir and just generally the complete breakdown of communication channels between Kashmir and other parts of India and the siege of Kashmir by the Indian government and so on. So a lot of those folks were arrested. And the, at, the, at the farmer protest, there was an instance, there was a day when the entire protesting was dedicated to holding up pictures of uh, all the arrested activists and arrested protesters from other protests and demand the, demanding their release, right? The release of all the incarcerated activists. That is an interesting piece of the puzzle because, again, like there is a promise of sort of solidarity in the farmer protest that seeks to both extend and engage with protests that have characterized the past year or basically characterized uh, Modi's reign after his re-election for his second term. And so there is a sort of perceived continuity here by the farmers and the union leaders in, in this case, you know, that, that this is not an isolated incident, but rather uh, just points to the rising fascist tendencies of the state. And so that has been something important, though this, of course, the farmer protest is not a politically pure space, right? I've pointed out, you know, and I want to assert as much as I can, you know, that caste and gender are important aspects here and that, you know, there's a lot in these protest sites and in the organizing where, you know, there, there's a failure to account for caste and to account for gender. Nonetheless, at least there has been a display of solidarity across protests, right? So the fact that there are precedents and that there's a frame of reference that the farmers use in and in this case the frame of reference is the protest against the assault on muslim citizenship and the protest against rape cases and particularly upper caste sexual violence in rural and urban areas in india and and rising hindu nationalism which sort of provides a veneer of protection to all of these things that at least in, at the farmer protest you see a sort of frame of reference that emerges that this protest is located discursively within a larger field, you know, even though the 
CA and RC protests, they're no longer ongoing or like, or the folks have been asked to disperse, right? Had been asked to disperse because of COVID, that at least it exists in the protest imaginary of the farmers and that there is a call for solidarity and to not be focused on, you know, the issue as an isolated idea, but rather as, uh, you know, one amongst a series of steps taken by the Modi government. One other aspect of the government and of these corporate interests in terms of land is uh, the issue of Adivasis or indigenous Indians, and um, particularly amongst them, those who are farmers and also those who are traditional forest dwellers. And this is, you know, a group that is involved, is sort of like, has been historically the victim of land reform in India, particularly around the liberalization of the economy and the granting of land rights to uh, big mining corporations. And and then, you know, these uh, indigenous farmers or indigenous forest dwellers were also uh, forced into uh, labor you know, in large mining facilities set up on their land. Uh, You know, there's a lot of potential here for the unions and for other kinds of groups associated with organizing that are not associated with unions to really expand this protest site into not just land in the sense of farming, right, which seems to be the immediate cause here of the protest, but also land reform more generally and as it as it pertains to land, uh, indigenous land rights, and also land in the sense of, you know, citizenship and nation state, that there is a sort of like Hindu nationalism does impose a, a claim on the geographical space of the nation state here depriving or threatening to deprive, you know, large chunks of the population of their uh, citizenship and thereby making them completely subject to the tyrannies or the will of the state. So yeah, I think that there is a potential in this protest to both frame the protest in reference to the precedents, as well as inaugurate a sort of solidarity between Adivasi land rights and protest and whatever, um, you know, the farmer worker solidarity, which already has emerged, because there was a general strike, an all India strike called by these farmers and a large scale participation in it was noted by truck driving unions and street vendor unions and unions of cab and taxi drivers, you know, but again, like all of this is happening in the pandemic and that is a limitation. One sort of critique, you know, that we can sort of utilize here is that despite the fact that in the pandemic, I think we've seen globally how like global food chains uh, and global food supply chains within COVID, like we've seen how, um, you know, within the neoliberal globalized economy, they are so delicate and at every link of this chain, right, it is marked by exploitation. So the one thing that has not emerged from these sites yet is talking about the environment and talking specifically about climate change and how agriculture relates to that in the light of, you know, this is all coming after the Green Revolution. And there has been, at least at these protest sites as of now, like little to no talk of and amongst the organizers, uh, not so much conversation about what are the kind of sustainable farming practices that ought to emerge from this protest site, right? What are the farmer demands that should be placed at front and center that not only ensure, you know, a return to some state regulation, but also like ideas of sustainable farming that support the farmers, but also support the climate and support the environment. You know, in in Punjab, there are villages where cancer rates are very high, mainly because of the fertilizer in the water right, since these are largely agricultural lands. 
so cancer rates are very high among farmers in Punjab. So there is a lack of addressing this particular issue of what's sustainable farming on such a large scale, right, where I think 50% of the Indian workforce is engaged in some way or another with farming labor. And yet there are no demands for, you know, what sustainable farming might look like. So that's, you know, something that hasn't emerged yet, but might and probably will. I wouldn't be too pessimistic about it. The overall sense of this protest in terms of, you know, the history of other protests, at least, is one that there is an imagined solidarity between protesters across the period of like, you know, ever since Modi was reelected. And so there, the fact that the farmers have demanded the release of um, these political prisoners or incarcerated activists who were imprisoned because of their anti-caste politics, you know, and then these are famous writers, poets, journalists, academics, um, student on- organizers. So at least the effort to build solidarity across protests has been uh, useful. You know, the, they had the eighth round of talks, which was not very fruitful. So if this does lead to the march on the Red Fort on uh, January 26th, it'll be a very important moment in the global history of labor and strikes, but also just, you know, in imagining the city New Delhi and Old Delhi as a site of protest, you know, in the past two years. Like, so alongside the centralizing impulse of the union government, we see this uh, march to Delhi or occupy Delhi aspect of protesters, right, where there is a point of convergence that has somehow, like Delhi has emerged as this point of convergence for these protests in the past year and a half. There is a sort of infrastructural stress on the city in terms of water and, you know, other chains of economic supply, right? It threatens many industrial complexes in terms of a lot of the workers who enter New Delhi uh, live on the outskirts. So alongside this uh, blockading of the roads, there was a parallel movement to block the railways. And a majority of sort of uh, workers who travel from the outskirts of New Delhi who live in, um, you know, industrialized satellite cities, uh, they take the train. So when the train was blocked, right, that was a real pressure on like businesses and factories and industries. However, many of these industries were already working at, you know, reduced capacity because of COVID. So I think that particular blocking the rail impact would have been greater if we imagined a sort of return to regular occupancy, work occupancy and factory occupancy in a post-COVID time. There's a sort of discrepancy here in terms of infrastructural pressure because Delhi, right? So we're sort of talking about Delhi as the site of protest in the past year and a half, but also, you know, what the city itself, like what the city needs for sustaining itself. So Delhi as the capital is the home of the central government or the union government, right? So the parliament is there and right, the big political offices are in Delhi. At the same time, Delhi also has its own government, right? And uh, so there's a chief minister. The chief minister of Delhi is in solidarity with the farmers. And this has very serious logistical implications. So the chief minister comes from a party called the Ahmadmi Party or the, you know, Common Man's Party. And it's a left of center progressive kind of party, though it's it's not a leftist party, unlike the Communist Party of India or, or others. So the chief minister has come out in support of the farmer strike. At the same time, the central government, which is also housed in Delhi, is, you know, in talks with the farmers and obviously opposes the farmer protest on multiple grounds. So there has been a discrepancy in terms of how the logistical pressure is perceived, right? 
So in the case of the of the Delhi government, the logistical pressure posed by these farmers is considered legitimate. And there have been, you know, the municipal corporations of Delhi have been mobilized by the Delhi government to support the farmers in some ways. For instance, the chief minister of Delhi ordered setting up of Wi-Fi booths at the protest sites. And they've also sort of taken taken up the issue of sanitation a little bit, you know, providing some other kinds of shelter. Again, like it's a discrepancy. The, the Delhi police, on the other hand, has been used to use tear gas and uh, hosing these farmers, right? Uh, so there's a discrepancy here between the Delhi police and police brutality. The central government, uh, which is in charge of commanding the police, and the Delhi government, which is in support of the strike, thereby authorizing a number of municipal aid, uh, you know, in terms of how the city functions for the folks at these sites. You know, so this has been important in the narrative of the government. So, for instance, the state has responded to these uh, to these farmer protests by one calling them terrorists but when they've called them terrorists they haven't said farmers are terrorists right according to their you know misleading narrative those protesting are not actually farmers but rather some quote radicalized elements of society and the other sort of narrative that has been proposed by the government is something along the lines of you know minoritizing the farmers and and what i mean by minoritizing here is you know infantilizing them politically so they've said things like, oh, these innocent farmers are puppets in the hands of radicals or something like that, right? Depoliticizing the farmers and obviously robbing them of their political agency, uh, but also portraying to the you know people who are watching news at home on TVs, uh, portraying the entire protest as some kind of conspiracy by the opposition parties or the left, you know, to dupe farmers into protesting a number of reforms that otherwise would be really good for them. You know, this idea of infantilization of the farmers has emerged. And there is the other idea of like just saying that this is a this is a union, you know, unions have hatched a plot or something to overtake the government, right? Which is on the other hand, like those who have been in the field, such as photojournalists and other scholars, have reported that, you know, a majority of the people on the ground are actual farmers and many of them marched to Delhi long before unions showed up in villages, you know, organizing. The unions, again, like I've said this before, were sort of, you know, they did not anticipate the scale. They were not at the forefront, right? It's it's rather a case that like folks marched to the city and then the unions joined them in sort of helping organize. So there's been a lot of infantilization of the farmers. You know, I think that like that it has been recognized by, again, because of the wave of protests, that there's a sort of desire on the part of the government to construct the farmers as the newest in a, you know, in a long list of neoliberal subjects uh, of the state to completely depoliticize them. In fact, some leaders who have defended the protest and leaders of the protest movement itself have said that this is not political. This is not political, right? So innocent farmers are being blackmailed by political radicals. Many have defended the protest as being apolitical, that this is not somehow political, right? And in doing so, they have, again, like depoliticized the farmer as a neoliberal subject you know, something akin to what the farmer is in the in, in the sort of narrative of the government or discursively some sort of, uh, you know, entity subject to the free market. This idea that, you know, that the farmers have been both minoritized, infantilized and robbed of their their desires and rights to assert themselves politically or to have politics, right, in, in a narrative where like all politics is bad politics, to be political is to be corrupt or something, right? So the farmers have been either on one end perceived as what on one end of the extreme where they are terrorists in the narrative of the government or on the other end where they are, 
you know, supremely innocent people duped by political radicals into performing politics. I think one more thing I would add is just that the government has participated in the dissemination of conspiracy theories about these farmers being part of a, a separatist movement and so on. And that like that has had a major impact in actually discrediting these protesters, right, in the imaginary of the sort of like middle class state subjects who are watching this at home or something and and also the state intellectuals right so in their minds like it does it does a lot to discredit these farmers to just call them you know members of gangs right quote unquote that don't exist right which are made up by conspiracy theories on the right and that there have been you know that rumor has been a very important aspect of the reception of this protest uh, for instance there were rumors of certain slogans right like slogans that were not used at these protest sites were later reformulated and repackaged on national news media mainstream news as like oh these farmers are chanting you know death to india or whatever any any sort of non statist slogan right these narratives have been used by the government to justify their uh, you know lack of response to the farmers in terms of like amending these or just repealing the these three acts right a lot of that non action on the part of the government is justified to a larger public by the fashioning of this a uh, narrative of you know both the innocent slash the terrorist uh, but also this idea of oh they're chanting like anti india slogans right and this too uh, sort of comes in a wave of declaring different groups anti national so first it was the you know it was the student organizers of protests and they were largely i mean particularly muslim students right as part of like denying them citizenship there was also the declaring them anti national and and at, at the you know the sort of political moment that we live in of course like being anti-national comes at the peril of like one's own bodily autonomy and you know being able to like survive in the state so they declared those folks anti-national anti-caste activists who were incarcerated were also deemed anti-national and in that string of like declaring people anti-national come you know now the farmers like the farmers are anti-national now right and the protest you know my narrative has been one about like the logistics or the history or the context but of course those who are consuming certain kinds of mainstream media and then right wing media are learning about this protest as being some kind of part of a larger conspiracy attacking the integrity of the nation state so there is a lot of burden on protesters historically you know especially when they converge on the capital to prove themselves as indian or as patriotic before all else like just as a protest strategy to be legitimized by media organs you know as as like newsworthy right you have to first really establish yourself as like oh yes i'm not trying to set up a separate state there's a lot of elements of the right wing's discrediting of the protest that revolve around this kind of conspiracy theory like oh these are separatists oh farmers are anti-national oh they're all spies or uh, there's a lot of this kind of rumor that shapes the reception of this protest on the right yeah and i just think it's important to note that the, the limitations to the impact of these protests are often shaped by how the right wing narrative is consumed by regular you know middle class folks who are consuming media that discredits protesters along the lines of like patriotic discourse or discourse about the nation state Thanks to Gorica for giving us such an in-depth view of the protests. We're closing with the second song, in which the farmers use a Punjabi folk song's refrain to describe the protest and criticize the central government.
This has been Partisan Gardens. On this program, we are going to look at the world through the lens of food. We will speak directly to those with their hands in the dirt. But also to those in all sectors of the food world. To the servers and those being served. To the history of food in this country and beyond. We will focus on understanding the systemic problems in our food industry, including food scarcity and racism. We want to talk to you, too. Please write us at partisangardens at wfhb.org, and we will be in touch. In upcoming segments of Partisan Gardens, stay tuned to hear about the history of the pawpaw, how the food service industry deals with the coronavirus, and how food scarcity impacts our local food banks and community. Stay tuned.